We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Dew Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Episode 47 of the Al Galdi Podcast. It is Monday, April 26, 2021. Hope you had a nice weekend. Hope you enjoyed the Oscars on Sunday night. You know, there is no group of people in this country more relatable, more in touch with middle America, more knowledgeable about life than you and me, than the Hollywood elite. Always, always remember that. In the meantime, us common folk will just have to perform menial tasks like talking sports on this podcast, but that's okay. We wouldn't have it any other way, but hope you had a nice week and hope you're ready for this week. It is NFL draft week. This week, all of the talking, all of the rumors, all of the speculating, all of the mock drafts, all of the hype comes to an end and the real thing actually takes place starting Thursday night. This is a huge week. Obviously, a.k.a. Obvi 
for the Washington football team. You have made the right choice to listen and hopefully subscribe to this podcast. You are going to get inside analysis and coverage of Washington's 2021 draft on this pod like nowhere else. I can promise you that. So make sure that this podcast is a part of your week as many of you already do. I have for you on today's show regarding the Washington football team and the draft, not one, but two deep dives, if you will. First up, a deep dive on a terrible recent trend of Washington drafts that hopefully is ending. And that is the trend of taking guys in first and second rounds who end up having major character flaws. You know, Washington has been guilty of some terrible due diligence on guys who the team has drafted in recent years. Are Ron Rivera and the new look for an office changing that? And what might this mean for Washington drafting a certain someone who I know a lot of you like, and I like, the Penn State linebacker, Micah Parsons. Also, I have for you a deep dive into the Washington football team's situation at left tackle of the Baltimore Ravens trading Orlando Brown Jr. to the Kansas City Chiefs on Friday. Washington reportedly was in on Orlando Brown Jr. To what extent is hard to say, but where is Washington at left tackle, especially given that the Virginia Tech offensive tackle, Kristen Darisol, has been mocked to Washington with that number 19 overall pick? quite a bit. There is something about Washington at left tackle that's not getting any attention, and so I'm going to give that proper attention on the show on this Monday. Also, the Wizards! The damn Washington Wizards! Yes, sir! Two more wins over the weekend for the Wizards. If the Wiz beat the San Antonio Spurs at Capital One Arena on Monday night, the Wizards tie the longest winning streak in franchise history. Now, That's only nine games, okay? So that's another conversation is how is it that the longest winning streak in the history of this franchise is a mere nine games? But anyway, the Wizards are flying. Another win on Sunday night, 119-110 over the Cleveland Cavaliers at Capital One Arena. It was a bad weekend for the Nationals in New York, losing two or three at the Mets. It was a good weekend for the Capitals in New York with another big win at the Islanders. We'll be talking Nats and Caps on the show. And speaking of winning streaks, the Orioles on Sunday avoided a three-game sweep and snapped the longest winning streak in the majors. I'll be talking O's later in the pod. Speaking of the majors, by the way, that Madison Bumgarner seven-inning no-hitter in the Arizona Diamondbacks, 7-0 win at the Atlanta Braves on Sunday. Uh, that's not a no-hitter, okay? So people need to stop calling that a no-hitter. It is a seven-inning no-hitter. If you want to say that, that's fine. But like any debate of, well, does this count as a real no-hitter? No, it doesn't. Uh, okay, there's your answer, all right? Uh, th- th- there's the give and take on that conversation. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Seven-inning no-hitter. Great performance, okay? Good to see the Braves lose like that. But that is not a technical no-hitter. That is a seven-inning no-hitter. Good for old Mad Bum. But that does not go down in any kind of record book in any kind of way. And it's not even a debate. And I hate how people try to phony up the base now. Like every little thing. Like, well, does this count as this? Or does that mean that? Like, no, actually it doesn't. (laughs) You know what? Actually it doesn't. Actually it's not a no-hitter. And it's not even much of a conversation. Uh, Anyway, you can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. I got a lot of feedback over the last few days to our Alex Smith conversation. My Alex Smith rant on Friday's podcast regarding the latest venom that was spewed from Alex regarding how he was treated by Ron Rivera in 2020. Ron patronized me. Ron wasn't very nice to me. Why was Ron a meanie pants to me? Uh, anyway, I got this email from Sabah, and Sabah wrote this email before the uh, Alex comments to SI.com came out. But anyway, uh, Sabah, who is a very good uh, emailer, 
Very loyal listener, huge Washington football team fan. Uh, she says, the greatest thing that Alex Smith brought to the team is class to an organization that Dan Snyder has been ruining for more than 20 years. When Alex came in versus the Rams, my phone and Twitter blew up as everyone was watching our team. We went from being the loser team that no one respected to being the underdog people were rooting for, all because of Alex Smith. For that alone, he should be in the ring of fame. Your thoughts? Well, thank you for the email, Sabah. Uh, remember, Alex uh, made his season debut in that game against the Rams. Alex also got ravaged in that game <laughs> against the Rams. So, I mean, if we're going to hold up that moment as being a special one, we should remember what ended up happening. Maybe the single worst half of offensive football in the history of the franchise. It was a 30-10 loss to the Los Angeles Rams at a rainy FedEx field in week five of the 2020 season. Washington in that second half had minus six total net yards of offense. Alex in the second half of that game, four of 11 for two yards, and he got sacked five times. That's what happened in that Alex Smith debut in the 2020 season. Now, to Alex's credit, he was much better in his second and third appearances of the 2020 season. Threw for at least 300 yards in each of two consecutive games for the first time in his career. But yeah, that Rams game, that does not go down as a happy memory. But I get where Sabah is coming from. And she asks again, should Alex be in the Ring of Fame? Uh, no. No, he should not. Uh, first of all, the Ring of Fame is for the truly elite players in the history of the franchise. Alex Smith was not an elite player in the history of the franchise. And if you're really being objective about things, great dude, all-time great comeback, tremendous story, but he really wasn't that good of a quarterback, all right? I know he went 11-5 and and all that kind of a thing, and I'm not saying that he was, you know, a complete joke and that he brought nothing good to the table, because that's not fair either, but he was underwhelming in 2018, and he ended up being underwhelming in 2020. And so for that, I'm not going to put someone in the ring of fame. And the fact that it's ending pseudo-ugly with the team probably doesn't help his cause. Although I think, you know, a lot of this stuff can be forgiven and maybe even forgotten in a few years. I mean, I don't think this is like the end of the world that Alex has said the things that he said. Also keep this in mind too, and I don't know how much this matters, but we never actually talked about this on the podcast. So of course, the initial bitter Bob comments from Alex were made to GQ.com a few months ago. Uh, also in conjunction with GQ was Alex doing this uh, video in which he goes undercover as an internet commentator. And he talks in the video at one point about a comment on YouTube on the name football team. And the comment is football team is the best name ever. Even if you are sober, you sound like a drunk when you scream football team. And you know, it's a silly little comment, nothing wrong with it. And Alex says in response to that, well, it's better to sound like a drunk than a racist. Ooh, a little shot from Alex at the former name of the Washington football team. Now, I don't know if Alex just said that as a joke. I don't know if Alex really meant that when he said that. But Alex Smith never said anything in 2018 and 2019 when he was getting big fat checks from the team with the racist name. Alex Smith never came out and said, well, this, this name is wrong. I don't stand for this. So what happened? What happened, Bubala? Huh? Now, you know, if he legitimately changed his mind because he was awakened to certain things, that's fine. People are allowed to change their minds. I don't hold that against them. But I wonder about something like that, you know? Like, you never said anything about the name. Just like so many people never said anything about the name. And now all of a sudden, oh, yeah, that name, that's a terrible name, racist name. You can't have that name. Really? Really? 
Where were you 10 years ago, five years ago, three years ago, two years ago, a year ago? It's not even a year since the name changed. So that's all. You know, I don't hate Alex Smith, but the more we, we peel away at the onion, the more we're seeing things that aren't so warm and fuzzy as the Alex Smith story had been for so much of the last few years. You know, I wonder, maybe Alex is just stressed out because he's thinking about selling his home and he doesn't feel like giving the real estate agent four to six percent of the sale price. And you know what? If that's the case, I don't blame Alex because selling a home is stressful enough. The last thing you need is to be worried about, again, giving tens of thousands of dollars of your money to a real estate agent. What if I told you that that last part is no more? One of the great supporters of this podcast, John Grandland, John G with Real Broker, is changing the way that real estate is done. He is selling homes for free. That's right, for free. John G is an OG when it comes to zero commission and you don't lose out on anything in terms of high level service. Here's how this works. For those living in Northern Virginia, if you buy and sell with John, the commission paid to John when you sell is refunded back to you when you buy, making the total commission paid to John when you sell zero. And if you're not selling a home in Northern Virginia, no worries. John can connect you with a top producing partner agent who can offer you the same great services with a discounted fee. Some conditions apply. Just ask Rhonda, who had John sell a single family home in Chantilly, or as my wife calls it, the till. Quote, John has an extensive knowledge of real estate in Northern Virginia. He was wonderful to work with and has a fantastic attitude. John made the entire process of selling my home easier, and I had a great experience working with him End quote. John Granlin, great guy, big Washington football fan, big Nats fan. Find out what he can do for you when it comes to selling your home. Again, zero commission sale. Check out this website, johngsellsforfree.com. The website says it all, johngsellsforfree.com. Check it out right now on your smartphone, on your tablet. Just give it a look. See what John can do for you. Or better yet, call John Grandland and tell him you want what you heard about on the Al Galdi podcast. Zero commission sale of your home. The phone number is 703-537-6747. That's 703-537-6747. John Grandland, zero commission real estate. Tell him Al Galdi sent you and start packing. So did you happen to see one of the things that was out there over the weekend? Many, many things happen in sports every weekend, and you have the loud major headlines, but you also have the oh-so-subtle page two type headlines, and the following qualified as the latter. We over Friday and Saturday had multiple reports that LSU is in the process of banning Darius Geis from the school's athletic program indefinitely and stripping his name from the program's records. Yes, Darius Geis. Cuckoo! Cuckoo! Uh-huh, that guy. The same Darius Geis who the Washington football team released last August 7th, hours after he was arrested on domestic violence charges. The same Darius Geis for whom a number of other alleged misdeeds have surfaced since. The same Darius Geis for whom a number of other alleged misdeeds have surfaced since. The same Darius Geis who Washington spent a second round pick on in the 2018 NFL Draft. The 2021 NFL Draft, as you may have heard, begins this Thursday night. And of the many questions that we have about what Washington is going to do, here's one that hasn't gotten any attention. 
Is the new look front office of Ron Rivera, Martin Mayhew, Marty Herney, Chris Polian, and Eric Stokes, if we're going to drill down deep, going to avoid picking guys who turn out to be disasters as people? Because here's the truth. Darius Geis was part of Washington completely whiffing on four first or second round picks over a four-year stretch, talking about 2016 through 2019. Take a step back and consider this list. Josh Doxson, first round pick in the 2016 NFL draft. Sua Cravens, second round pick in the 2016 draft. Darius Geis, second round pick in the 2018 draft. Dwayne Haskins, first round pick in the 2019 draft. Two first round picks, two second round picks, all total whiffs due in no small part to who these guys were as guys. And certainly only Geis out of these four is alleged to have committed criminal behavior. Let's make that clear. But all four very clearly had issues when it came to being NFL players beyond just what they could do on the field. We'll take these guys sequentially. So Josh Doxson, first round pick in the 2016 draft, ends up lasting a mere three seasons with Washington as the team released him on August 31st, 2019 in the cut down to 53. If you remember the particulars of the Doxson release, Doxson reportedly was released off repeated attempts to trade him. So Washington was trying to get something back for Josh Doxson, couldn't get anything back. And one of the great ironies of Doxson being cut when he was, again, cut down to 53 for the 2019 season, was that among the receivers who made Washington's 2019 season opening 53-man roster over Doxson was Robert Davis. Washington took Davis with the 2017 six-round pick that Washington got back from the Houston Texans for trading down a spot in the 2016 first round, during which, of course, Washington took Doxson. So a receiver who Washington got with a six-round pick that the team got back from the Texans for trading down to take Doxson ends up making the team to begin the 2019 season over Doxson. You can't make this stuff up. Now, Josh Doxson was not like a bad human being. And again, he was not guilty of any illegal behavior or anything like that during his time with Washington. But he did come across as someone who just didn't love football. And that was always kind of the book on Josh Doxson during his time with Washington. Not not like a terrible person or anything like that, but he did not come off like someone who truly loved football. Remember his 2016 rookie season, he played in just two games due to problems with both of his Achilles tendons, especially the left one. But there was a belief that year, trust me on this, that his heart was not into playing that season. There also was some stuff out there that, you know, maybe he was like homesick and stuff. So, you know, I don't know. There may have been loneliness issues. Maybe there were mental health issues. I don't know. I'm not here to impugn the character of Josh Doxson, but I do know that this was a thing, that people felt like, you know what? Nice kid, nothing wrong with him. But does he really want this? Like, is he really into being an NFL player? Doxson, note this, did opt out of the 2020 season with the New York Jets due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Again, that doesn't make him a bad person. They may, there may well have been very legitimate reasons for Josh to have opted out of last season. But if you're trying to build the case of, does he really want to be an NFL player? Does he really love doing this? You could perhaps use that as some ammunition. I will never forget this Q&A with Jay Gruden about Josh Doxson. And remember this, Jay actually defended Doxson quite a bit. Jay used to talk about how guys like Kirk Cousins and Alex Smith needed to throw Josh Doxson more 50-50 balls, even though Josh Doxson like never came down with those 50-50 balls. But listen to this Q&A from a few years back, Jay getting asked about Doxson. Listen to the annoyance in Jay's voice in the response. What's Josh's confidence level like? I didn't ask him. 
Yeah, yeah. That's how it was with Doxson. There was always something... There was always like this, well, why isn't he playing and why isn't he making the catches? And, you know, is he going to be benched? Is he going to continue to start? Why hasn't he lived up to being a first round pick in the 2016 draft? And again, Jay was a Josh defender. And even Jay at a certain point got sick of being asked about and dealing with Josh Doxson. What's Josh's confidence level like? I ask him. Exactly. Exactly. How about Washington's second round pick in that 2016 NFL draft? Sua Cravens. Boy, did Washington nail it in that 2016 draft. Josh Doxson in the first round, Sua Cravens in the second round. Remember, that was the second of the two Washington drafts run by Scott McLuhan. So keep that in mind the next time you hear about how it was so bad that Washington fired Scott McLuhan after the 2016 season. And look, Scott did some good things with Washington. I'm not here to tell you that he didn't. But man, those first two picks in that 2016 draft Woof, okay? Doxson in the first round, Cravens in the second round. Sua Cravens got traded by Washington in March 2018 to the Denver Broncos. And if you have forgotten the specifics of the Sua saga, let me refresh your memory. Washington spent a 2016 second round pick on Sua, paid him millions of dollars, handed him the starting strong safety job for the 2017 season, He suffered a meniscus injury in the preseason opening loss at the Baltimore Ravens in that 2017 preseason, underwent surgery on August 15th, 2017, and then upped and left the team on the weekend of the cutdown to 53. Didn't leave the team sooner. Didn't say to the team, hey, you know what? I'm having some issues here. You know, you may want to think about another plan at strong safety. No, on the weekend of the cutdown to 53, Sua upped and left the team. Washington put Sua on the exempt slash left squad list due to contemplating retirement and then put him on the reserve slash left squad list. And this was a continuation of a pattern of unreliable behavior from Sua Cravens. And here really is the crux of what I'm trying to get at here in this segment. So it came out that Sua once went missing for three days while at USC, also while dealing with an injury. There was a history of this with Sua Cravens. And the thing that galled me more than anything was this. John Kime, Washington football team insider for ESPN at the time, reported that Washington did not know that Sua had once went missing for three days while at USC, while also dealing with an injury. Kime reported that Washington did not know about this during the pre-draft process in 2016. Why? I don't know. Didn't do enough due diligence. Didn't ask the right people the right questions. Who knows? But Washington spent a second round pick on a guy who upped and left his collegiate team, just like the guy eventually upped and left his first professional team. And it's not just that. Sua, during his 2016 rookie season with Washington, you may recall, suffered a concussion. And then on Snapchat, revealed that he had permanent vision damage due to the concussion. This turned out to be a joke. This was a weird deal. I remember this during the 2016 season. Maybe you do as well. Sua later in that 2016 rookie season suffered an arm injury and was inactive for the final three games of the season in which, remember, Washington went 8-7-1 and and missed the playoffs. NFL insider Albert Breer of the MMQB in March 2017 in a piece on the firing of McLuhan as Washington general manager, reported the following on Sua. Quote, the rookie safety slash linebacker injured his biceps on December 11th against the Eagles. Initially, the team believed it was a tear. It wound up being a bruise, the kind players often play through. Cravens missed the following Monday's game against Carolina, 
and then the next game in Chicago on Christmas Eve. By then, teammates, some of whom had seen him playing ping pong at the facility, were openly wondering why he wasn't pushing through the injury. After he missed two games, the team wanted him to get the arm drained in an effort to play in Week 17. Cravens responded by not showing up to the facility for treatment that day, at which point McLuhan decided to call Cravens. That didn't go over well with Allen. Yes, as in Bruce. Some veterans felt McLuhan was simply trying to uphold the culture that he and Gruden had worked to build, which is seen as a Seattle thing. Parentheses, McLuhan worked for the Seahawks from 2011 to 2013. If you see something, say something. But certainly, there'd be some debate in the football world over whether it's a GM's place to handle those things. Parentheses, Craven sat out the finale, end quote. So put aside the McLuhan-Allen stuff there. Bizarre behavior, unreliable behavior, behavior that turns people off to him from a standpoint of him being a good teammate and a good, loyal soldier to the football team. Again, there was a pattern of this with Sua Cravens. Washington spent a second-round pick on the guy without apparently knowing about this pattern. How about, yes, the man who was in the subtle headlines over the weekend, Darius Geis. Washington spent a second-round pick on him in the 2018 draft. Like I said, this past August 7th, released Geis hours after his arrest on multiple domestic violence charges. The news of Washington releasing guys, you may recall, came minutes after the news broke that guys had been arrested on five domestic violence-related charges, one felony and four misdemeanors, one count of strangulation, which was the felony, three counts of assault and battery, and one count of destruction of property. Now, if you remember the specifics of all this, the arrest was not based on one alleged incident. The arrest was based on three alleged incidents. Among the alleged incidents was one that took place on March 13th, 2020, Geis's girlfriend told cops that he, quote, strangled her until she was unconscious by putting his hands around her neck and applying the pressure, end quote. The woman said that when she regained consciousness, Geis was, quote, crying and tapping her, end quote. Cuckoo, cuckoo. She told cops that Geis had also pushed her and pulled her hair more than once that same day. The woman said that she left the house to catch a flight and didn't look in the mirror until she was at the airport. That's when she realized she was badly bruised and took photos of her injuries, which she submitted to police. Now, you might hear that and say, wow, that's awful. And of course it is, but it did happen after Washington drafted Darius Geis. If only, if only Washington could have known that Darius Geis was perhaps prone to this kind of whacked out behavior. If only there had been some way to uncover this behavior by Darius Geis. Well, sure enough, what came out really not that long ago, perhaps you came across this back in March. Article by USA Today investigative reporter Kenny Jacoby published on March 26th. The article had the following headline. You ready for this? Grandmother harassed by then LSU player Darius Geis claims Ed Orgeron lied to investigators. And the article included the following. (laughs) This is unbelievable. 74-year-old Gloria Scott remembers vividly the day in December 2017 that Darius Geis, LSU's then standout running back and his friends, approached her while she was sitting. She glanced up and they stopped right in front of her. I like to F women like you, you older women, because y'all know y'all like us young men to F y'all, Scott said Geis told her. And you know you want this body. Scott was shocked, she said. Geis kept making vulgar comments 
while rubbing his body up and down from his chest to his genitals. Cuckoo! Cuckoo! Yeah. She said she asked guys to move away and leave her alone, but he refused. He had a big grin on his face, she said, and his friends were on his sides laughing. This went on for a few minutes, Scott said. She felt degraded. She complained to LSU Athletic Department administrators, the school student accountability director, and directly to Geis' head coach, Ed Orgeron. Nothing happened, she said. Geis, who despite being accused of sexual misconduct three times before this incident, was never disciplined by the school. End quote. There was a pattern of behavior with Darius Geis, in case you're not sure. Gloria Scott's allegation was at least the fourth sexual misconduct complaint that the LSU Athletic Department received about guys in less than a two-year span. All four complaints went uninvestigated by LSU. So yes, LSU did a good job of trying to cover this stuff up, apparently. But USA Today's Kenny Jacoby and Nancy Armour last August 19th reported that two former LSU students said that guys raped them just months apart in 2016, though each woman said that she was highly intoxicated at the time. The report also said that one of the women, a former LSU tennis player, spoke at length with an investigator for the Washington football team on August 6th, one day before Geis' arrest and subsequent release. So how much of this Washington could have uncovered on its own is hard to say. I will grant you that. But very clearly, as I just outlined and as others have uncovered, this pattern was there. It's not like Darius Geis came to the NFL squeaky clean and then started acting allegedly the way he ended up acting. And know this about Geis, okay? Because if you want to say, well, geez, you know, LSU covered this up and Washington couldn't have had any shot at figuring any of this stuff out. Do you know who took Darius Geis off his draft board? Do you know about this? Yeah, Ron Rivera. Ron Rivera and the Carolina Panthers going into the 2018 NFL draft took Geis off the draft board because of, yes, concerns about Geis' knees, okay? It wasn't just a character thing. It was also an injury thing. And Lord knows, Darius Geis had injury issues during his time with Washington, but also took Geis off the draft board due to concerns about his character. Kime reported that last August. So somehow Ron and the Panthers were able to figure at least some of this stuff out. Washington could not. And then the final man in our grand slam of character whiffs when it's come to recent Washington football team first and second round picks is the star of the 2020 season, Dwayne Haskins. First round pick, 2019 draft. Washington, of course, ends up releasing Dwayne via waivers this past December 28th, making him the first first round quarterback over the last 20 years to be cut before the end of his second NFL season. Think about that. And look, with Dwayne, he's not a bad human being, I don't think. He was not guilty of illegal behavior during his time with Washington, but he was guilty of immature and insincere behavior, the likes of which he had demonstrated at Ohio State. And Dwayne's immaturity and bad work ethic turned off a lot of people and never came close to being justified by his play with the Washington football team. I mean, that piece by Washington football team insider Les Carpenter of the Washington Post last December 29th, in which it says that Dwayne's fall with Washington included coaches being, quote, stunned by his constant late arrivals to meetings, end quote. Like, how the heck are you essentially handed the starting quarterback job by a no-nonsense new head coach off a so-so rookie season and then constantly late to meetings? Who does that? Who acts like that? Where does that come from? And of course, 
Washington selecting Dwayne with the number 15 overall pick in the 2019 draft was the act of the owner. It was not the act of the football people. But again, this is an instance of Washington spending a recent first or second round pick on someone who didn't just end up failing the team from an on-the-field standpoint, but very much failed the team when it came to behaviors off the field. So with all of the draft preparations going on, I really don't think you can overstate this. When you draft someone, it's not just who that person is as a player, it's who that person is as a person. And all you need to do is look at recent Washington football team draft history to understand how you can swing and miss and miss badly with high picks because a guy comes to the NFL either not ready for it, not truly wanting of it, or with skeletons in his closet that you either looked the other way on or didn't have the diligence or the gumption or the connections to find out about. And I'm not sure which one is worse, but clearly Washington went 0 for 4 with these four guys 2016 through 2019. And that brings us to one of the guys who Washington has been talked about perhaps selecting in the first round for whom there are character concerns. I'm talking about Penn State linebacker Micah Parsons. So Micah Parsons, if he's not the best linebacker in the 2021 draft, is no worse than the number two linebacker in the 2021 draft, right? I mean, it's him and the Notre Dame guy, Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa. But Micah Parsons is a physical freak. You could actually argue JOK is an even bigger physical freak. But Micah Parsons at the Penn State Pro Day this past March 25th measured as being 6'3 and 246 pounds and ran a 40-yard dash of 4.39 seconds. For comparison's sake, the fastest 40 by a quarterback at an NFL scouting combine was RG3's 4.4140 in 2012. Micah Parsons ran a faster 40 at the Penn State Pro Day then RG3 ran at the 2012 Combine, and the RG340 is the fastest 40 by a quarterback at an NFL Combine. Deshaun Jackson's 40 at the 2008 Combine was 435. Again, Micah Parsons' 40 at the Penn State Pro Day was 439. Again, physical freak. Parsons played for Penn State for two seasons, 2018 and 2019. He did not play in the 2020 season as he last August 6th announced that he was foregoing his remaining eligibility at Penn State to focus on training for the NFL draft. But Parsons was a monster in his 2019 sophomore season. And if you watch Penn State in 2019, you know of what I speak. Micah Parsons for his 2019 sophomore season, a consensus All-American by the NCAA, named the Associated Press All-America First Team. Parsons in his 29th sophomore season took on blocks with ease. Parsons in his 2019 sophomore season earned a run defense grade for pro football focus of 94.8 grades run a scale of 0 to 100. The 94.8 run defense grade for Parsons in 2019, the second best run defense grade by a power five conference linebacker in the PFF college era. So that's a fancy schmancy way of saying since the start of the 2014 season. Do you know who's number one, by the way, in terms of the best single season run defense grade by a power five conference linebacker since the start of the 2014 season? Reuben Foster. Yeah, Reuben Foster, 94.9 in 2016 for Alabama. But back to Parsons in 2019, a pass rush grade for pro football focus that season of 86.8 over just 94 rushes. He generated 26 pressures. He generated pressures, Parsons did, on about 28% of his rushes in 2019. So all of this is, of course, stuff to get you excited about with Micah Parsons. All of this is why you say to yourself as a Washington football team fan, boy, I hope Micah Parsons falls to Washington at number 19. But then there are the character concerns regarding Micah Parsons. October 2016, 
Parsons changed high schools are being suspended for supposedly inciting a riot by yelling out gun in the school cafeteria while police were in the cafeteria. <laughs> September 2017, Parsons' official visit to Ohio State turned into a total mess. First of all, Ohio State ultimately self-reported NCAA violations that were committed during Parsons' official visit. Uh, the violations had to do with Parsons visiting the said of ESPN's college game day. Second of all, Parsons sent out a tweet saying that Ohio State should have benched then-starting quarterback JT Barrett in favor of Dwayne Haskins. Yeah, but the tweet from Parsons became a thing, him advocating for all Wayne Wayne to supplant JT Barrett as the Buckeye starter in the 2017 season. And then there's this, and this is by far the biggest concern when it comes to Micah Parsons. So an ESPN.com report came out last November, shedding light on a lawsuit that was filed in January 2020 by a former Penn State football player named Isaiah Humphreys. Isaiah Humphreys claims that he was the victim of hazing and harassment, some of it sexually suggestive by Parsons and other players in 2018. And like with Geis, here's where we get into the bizarre, very strange, and very disturbing details. Humphreys told school investigators that Parsons and Penn State defensive tackle Damian Barber threatened Humphreys, telling him they were, quote, making me a B because this is a prison, end quote, and that Barber said, quote, I'm gonna Sandusky you, end quote. Cuckoo! Cuckoo! Yeah. Humphreys also said that Parsons and Barber would try to place genitalia close to players' faces and simulate sex acts and attempt to touch him in the shower. Cuckoo! Cuckoo! Yeah. Additionally, there was a fight in March 2018 between Humphreys and Parsons. Humphreys told a school investigator that Parsons was choking Humphreys and wouldn't stop, so Humphreys pulled out a pocket knife, which he said led Parsons to stop the choking and end the fight. Humphreys also said that Penn State head coach, the former Maryland head coach in waiting, James Franklin, urged Humphreys not to talk to police. Now, is this all true? I do not know. We will see. But again, if you're Ron Rivera, if you're Martin Mayhew, if you're Marty Herney, if you're Chris Polian, especially given the Washington football team's recent history of scandal and this ongoing culture change, you need to do all you can do to figure out the truth, to not look the other way, and to not waste a first or even second round pick on a guy who, yes, may have talent, all these guys I just listed for you in terms of Doxon, Cravens, Geis, and Haskins had talent, but also bring to the table major red flags. Making good draft picks isn't just about picking great athletes, picking guys who fit what you do in your offensive or defensive system, picking guys who are going to help you win. It's picking guys who are going to last with you because they're not going to get arrested or they're not going to tap out on the season or they're not going to engage in behavior so off-putting that you can't even have the guy on the team anymore, as was the case with Dwayne Haskins. Washington whiffed on Doxon, Cravens, Geis, and Haskins. It's one of the things that really got Washington in trouble. Like, when you're going through a list of reasons that Washington went 3-13 and in 2019, there are many, many reasons for that. But this is one of them. 0-4 over the course of four first-slash-second-round picks 
in a four-year stretch. You don't need me to tell you that that can't continue. It's one thing to miss on a pick because... We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Guy just ends up not being that good. You know, something like Ryan Anderson as a 2017 second round pick. It's another thing to whiff on a guy who ends up lacking in character or desire, especially when for some, if not all of these guys, the signs were there waiting to be seen and you either refused to see him or you didn't have the aptitude to see him. Let's hope that this current group running the Washington football team draft is capable of identifying not just the good players, but the good people. All right, guys, look, no one's perfect. Even the best baseball players strike out with the bases loaded. The best golfers sometimes three-putt with the tournament on the line. So if you feel like you come up short in the bedroom sometimes, it's perfectly okay. But if it's bothering you, there are options. Go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi now. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. A U.S. licensed healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, it ships to you free with two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi and complete an online visit. Take care of your ED without leaving home. Complete an online visit today to connect with a doctor and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi now to get $15 off your first month. Look, there's a straightforward way to take care of your ED. GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi. Get started now to save $15 on your first month of treatment. Big trade in the NFL on Friday. The Baltimore Ravens dealing offensive tackle Orlando Brown Jr. to the Kansas City Chiefs. The reported details of the trade. Ravens send Brown a 2021 second round pick and a 2022 sixth round pick to the Chiefs for their 2021 first round pick, number 31 overall a 2021 third round pick, a 2021 fourth round pick, and a 2022 fifth round pick. So a lot of moving parts here with this trade, but the bottom line is the strong get even stronger with the Chiefs getting Orlando Brown to protect quarterback Patrick Mahomes. Now, Orlando Brown Jr. really has become one of the better offensive tackles in the NFL. The Ravens took Brown in the third round of the 2018 draft out of Oklahoma. He is the son of the late former NFL offensive tackle Orlando Brown, who went to H.D. Woodson High School in D.C., played for the Ravens, 
and Cleveland Browns. Was known as Zeus, the original Orlando Brown was, was listed as being 6'7", 360 pounds. And sadly, Orlando Brown died in September 2011 of diabetes complications at the age of just 40. But Orlando Brown Jr. has continued the legacy. First of all, Orlando Brown Jr., like his pops, is massive, listed by the Ravens as being 6'8", 345 pounds. He was the Ravens starting right tackle in 2018 and 2019, but served as their starting left tackle for much of this past season due to Ronnie Stanley being injured. Brown on January 29th tweeted, quote, I'm a left tackle, end quote, with the word left in all caps. So I don't know if disgruntled is the right word, but Orlando Brown Jr. wanted no part of going back to right tackle with Ronnie Stanley being healthy. Orlando Brown Jr. wanted out, wanted to be a left tackle, and he wants to get paid. Orlando Brown Jr. is going into the final season of his rookie contract. So yeah, there's big money coming his way. And if you're the Ravens and this guy doesn't want to necessarily be with you to begin with, then okay, trading him perhaps makes sense. But like I said, Orlando Brown Jr. is really good. This past season for Pro Football Focus, no sacks allowed, no quarterback hits allowed, over 700 snaps at left tackle. So our team, the Washington football team, has been talked about as perhaps drafting a left tackle in the first round. We've heard the name Kristen Darrisaw, the left tackle out of Virginia Tech, a whole heck of a lot. And so Washington, it turns out, did talk with the Ravens about potentially trading for Orlando Brown Jr. Multiple reports coming out saying that Washington was in on the talks, but clearly Washington ultimately deciding that what it would take to get Orlando Brown Jr. wasn't enough. I mean, in theory, Washington would have had to given up its 2021 first round pick and probably more. And like I just said, you then have to pay Orlando Brown Jr. because he's going into the fourth and final season of his rookie contract. Personally, I'm not upset that Washington did not trade for Orlando Brown Jr. Now, had Washington traded for him, I could have lived with it. It's not like I would have been, oh my God, how dare they do that? But I think Washington not paying what it was going to take to get Orlando Brown Jr. brings something up that hasn't gotten talked about enough. And that is, Washington is actually in better shape at left tackle than people realize. And it's not to say that Washington is like set at left tackle for the next decade, okay? But it is to say that Washington this past season got sneaky quality play at left tackle. And the sneaky quality play came from Cornelius Lucas. So Cornelius Lucas is going into his age 30 season. He is going into the second season of a two-year $3.8 million contract that Washington signed Lucas to in March 2020 as an unrestricted free agent. Yeah, that's it. Two years, $3.8 million. When we talk about the bargain free agent contracts that Washington signed guys to in the 2020 offseason that ended up looking so good as the 2020 season went on, we talk about Logan Thomas, J.D. McKissick, Ronald Darby, but we also talk about Cornelius Lucas. Lucas in the 2020 regular season was Washington's starting left tackle for eight games, and then he also was the starting left tackle for the loss of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at FedEx Field in the wild card round of the playoffs. Lucas did miss two games due to an ankle injury that was suffered in that loss at the Detroit Lions in Week 10. But take a listen to this when it comes to Lucas in the 2020 regular season. Again, this like never gets talked about. Cornelius Lucas ranked 12th out of 38 qualified left tackles in overall grade for pro football focus at 78.2. So he was in the upper third, Lucas was, of NFL left tackles last season 
in terms of overall performance. How about this? Lucas in the 2020 regular season, over 536 offensive snaps, committed guess how many penalties? One. One penalty committed by Cornelius Lucas all of last regular season, over 536 offensive snaps. And guess how many sacks Cornelius Lucas allowed last regular season over those 536 offensive snaps? Two. Two sacks allowed by Lucas for pro football focus last regular season. One penalty committed, two sacks. That's it. And if you are a size freak, if you got a size fetish for your left tackles, know this, Cornelius Lucas listed by Washington as being 6'8 and nearly 327 pounds. Now, you may be saying to yourself, well, okay, that's great. He had a nice 2020 lightning in a bottle. Like, is this guy really legit? Well, consider the following, okay? Now, it is true, Washington in 2020 was Cornelius Lucas's fifth team in five seasons. So he has bounced around. There's, there's no getting around that. But in 2019, Lucas had a really nice season for the Chicago Bears. He went from someone not necessarily expected to make the season opening 53-man roster to becoming a really nice depth piece for Chicago in that 2019 season. He played in all 16 games with eight starts, including starting each of the Bears' final five games at right tackle. He, over those five games for pro football focus, registered an overall grade of 78.1, ranking 16th among offensive tackles during that span. Lucas committed zero penalties the entire 2019 season, despite playing on 509 offensive snaps and 61 special team snaps. So let's think about this for a moment now. Cornelius Lucas, over the last two regular seasons, over 1,045 offensive snaps, has committed one penalty. That's it. I'm not here to tell you he should be a fixture for the next decade, okay? I'm not telling you he's an excellent line of, you know, Chris Samuels to Trent Williams to Cornelius Lucas. Like, no, I'm not saying that. But, you know, this thing of Washington has to upgrade at left tackle. And, oh, my God, why hasn't Washington done more at left tackle? And Washington needs to spend its first round pick on a left tackle. I'm not against it, okay? I'm a BPA guy, best player available. If Kristen Darasaw is available to Washington at 19, and that's the top guy in terms of the remaining players on the Washington football team's draft board, then take Kristen Darasaw, okay? And zero problem with that. But don't sit here and make it sound like you have this, you know, massive hole at left tackle, that you have no options with which to work at left tackle, because it's not true. Cornelius Luke is going into the second season of a two-year contract, coming off a very good 2020, which followed a really nice 2019. Now, it's not just Cornelius Lucas. You do have Jaron Christian. Jaron Christian is going into his age 25 season and the final season of his rookie contract. Remember, it was Christian, not Lucas, who began last season as Washington's starting left tackle. Jaron Christian was Washington's starting left tackle for each of the team's first six regular season games, but he got hurt again. Christian uh, got placed on the reserve slash injured list last November 19th off having been inactive for the previous three games due to a knee injury. That's been a thing with Jaron Christian. He's dealt with injury in his career. 2018 rookie season got placed on the reserve slash injured list November 13th, 2018 due to a torn MCL suffered in the win at the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in week 10 of that season. 2019 injury wasn't the problem, but apparently desire was because Jaron Christen got buried as that 2019 season went on. I'll never forget this. He did not play on a single offensive snap in three of Washington's final four games in that lost season, right? Three and 13, 
new coaching staff coming on board. Washington plays a bunch of young players as the season goes on, and yet Kristen doesn't get time. The only work that he got down the stretch of that year was in that 41-35 overtime loss to the New York Giants at FedEx Field in Week 16. But the only reason Kristen played in that game was due to Morgan Moses suffering a right knee injury. And coming out of that 2019 season, there were work ethic and desire issues with Jaron Christian. Now, to his credit, he earned the starting left tackle job going into last season. He was okay. I mean, he, he wasn't great, but, you know, so much of the offensive line struggles early last season, I think, did have to do with Dwayne Haskins. But clearly, Washington was better with Cornelius Lucas at left tackle in 2020. But keep that in mind. You do still have Jaron Christian, who Washington thought enough of to spend a third-round pick on in the 2018 NFL Draft. And Remember this too, and not that you want this, but Morgan Moses did demonstrate an ability to play some left tackle last season. Now he is, of course, your right tackle. Moses going into his age 30 season and the penultimate season of a five-year contract extension that Washington signed Moses to in April 2017. Look, Morgan Moses, we just talked about Cornelius Lucas and how great he's been at avoiding the penalty. Moses has had some major penalty problems over the years, no doubt. 2018, he committed 14 accepted penalties, 16 total penalties. 2019, still nine accepted penalties, 11 total penalties. But he was better last season, just six accepted penalties, seven total penalties. If you go by the pro football focus overall grades, Moses in 2020 ranked sixth out of 40 qualified right tackles in overall grade for the 2020 regular season for PFF at 80.6. So he had himself a really nice 2020. And the thing that Morgan Moses deserves credit for as much as anything is his durability. In a time in which we've seen so many Washington players miss time due to injury, all Morgan Moses does is post. Now, does he get banged up during games? Yes, he does. How many times have we seen Moses laying on the field at some point in a given game? Many times over the years, no doubt about that. But understand, Morgan Moses goes into the 2021 season having started every game for Washington over the last six years, 2015 through 2020. But keep this in mind about Moses. He did play some left tackle last year. Those two games that Lucas missed due to the ankle injury, Morgan Moses was Washington's left tackle. Those two games, the 29 win over the Cincinnati Bengals at FedEx Field and the 41-16 blowout win at the Dallas Cowboys. So we're talking about weeks 11 and 12. And Washington's offensive line in the blowout win over the Bengals paved the way for running backs Antonio Gibson, J.D. McKissick, and Peyton Barber to combine for 30 carries for 165 yards and a touchdown. Washington's O-line in that blowout win at the Cowboys in Thanksgiving paved the way for Gibson, McKissick, and Barber to combine for 32 carries for 178 yards and three touchdowns. So I'm not here to tell you that it's ideal that Moses is your left tackle, but he has demonstrated an ability to play the position and things weren't that bad because Washington ran the ball down the Bengals and Cowboys' throats over weeks 11 and 12 of last season. And those were not very good teams, I'll grant you that, but you know, Washington wasn't exactly a world beater and yet Washington's offensive line dominated in those games when it came to those victories over Cincinnati and that Dallas. So the thing of like, oh, they didn't trade for Orlando Brown, or oh, they have to draft a left tackle in the first round. Again, not against either thing, but I feel like this has not gotten referenced nearly enough. What Washington already has at left tackle. And if you got to go with Cornelius Lucas as your LT1 for a second consecutive season, I'm okay with that. I'm good with that. What matters more than anything for Washington offensively in 2021 is better quarterback play. And to that end, Understand this about Ryan Fitzpatrick 
if in fact he ends up being Washington's QB1 to at least begin 2021. Fitzpatrick, over his 16 seasons in the NFL, has a regular season sack percentage, that's time sacked divided by pass attempts plus time sacked, of 5.6, including 5.0 in 2020. Compare that with the sack percentages of Washington's other primary quarterbacks in 2020. Alex Smith's sack percentage over eight games in the 2020 regular season was 8.0. Again, Fitzpatrick's was five. Dwayne Haskins' sack percentage over his two seasons with Washington was 9.9. Fitzpatrick's last season, again, was five. Kyle Allen's sack percentage over four games in the 2020 regular season was 7.4. Again, Fitzpatrick's last season was five. Ryan Fitzpatrick may be going into his age 39 season, but he has shown himself to be a quarterback who is nimble enough to avoid the sack, who is smart enough to avoid the sack, you know, gets his lines into the right protections, understands collapsing pockets, understands how to buy time. I mean, is he Lamar Jackson in terms of mobility? No, but he can run and he certainly can avoid the sack in a manner in which recent Washington quarterbacks have not been able to do. I mean, understand this. Washington quarterbacks in total last regular season took 50 sacks, 50 sacks, 5-0 for 331 lost yards. You should know by now that sacks aren't all about the offensive line. In fact, sacks are more about quarterbacks than people realize. So yeah, some sacks are unavoidable and are all on the O-line, but many are not. And the really good quarterbacks lessen the sack total. The really good quarterbacks avoid the sack. And Fitzpatrick has shown himself to be someone who can do that. And so like, if you want to get caught up in, you have to get better at left tackle this offseason, I'd love to get better at left tackle this offseason. But to me, it's not the must that some people have depicted it as. And we saw the offensive line look a lot better as last season went on, as the quarterback play got better as last season went on. I think we're going to see that even more so in 2021, especially if Fitzpatrick is the QB1 and playing as we've seen him play in recent seasons. All right, we arrive now at our Wizards who remain on fire. The damn Washington Wizards. Yes, sir, Stephen A. Smith. Two more wins for the Wiz over the weekend. Friday night, a 129-109 victory at the Oklahoma City Thunder. The Wizards in the game going 18-32 on threes, 30-61 on twos. Lights out shooting. Great second half for the Wiz. At OKC on Friday night, Wiz in the second quarter trilled by six at 51-45, then won the rest of the game 84-58. Wiz never trailed in the second half. Wiz in the second half held the Thunder to six at 21 on threes and nine at 27 on twos. Then came Sunday night. The Wizards get a 119-110 win over the lowly Cleveland Cavaliers at Capital One Arena. This win all about the fourth quarter. Wizards winning the fourth quarter 32-17 as they overcame an eight-point fourth quarter deficit. The Wizards over the first three quarters allowed the Cavs to actually have their way offensively with the Wizards. Cavs over the first three quarters, 93 points. 54.8% shooting, including 10 of 22 on threes. But the Wiz in the fourth quarter clamped down. Fourth quarter defense. That's what our Wizards are known for. Okay, maybe not so, but they were on Sunday night holding the Cavs to 17 fourth quarter points on 6 of 16 shooting, including 0 of 5 on threes. And so you take a step back and you look at where our Wizards are at right now. They are 27 and 33 
on the season. The team is creeping up to 500, believe it or not. The Wizards are 10 and 1 over their last 11 games. And how about this? The Wizards now have won eight consecutive games. It is their longest winning streak since a nine game winning streak in December 2001 with Michael Jordan playing for the Wizards. Yes, it's been 19 plus years since the Wizards did, as they're doing right now, win at least eight consecutive games. And understand this, nine games, that's the longest winning streak in Wizards slash Bullets history. It's happened multiple times, that winning streak has, but that's it. You know, it's not like some 15-game winning streak is a franchise record, or even like a 12-game winning streak is a franchise record. Nine-game winning streak is the franchise record, and that is what is on the line as the Wizards play the San Antonio Spurs at Capital One Arena Monday night at 7. Yes, history is on the line, my friends. The Wizards can tie their franchise record for longest winning streak at an oh-so-humble 9. The damn Washington Wizards! Yes, thank you, Stephen A. Smith. But the Wizards continue to fly. The Wizards, as we speak, on this Monday in the Eastern Conference standings are 10th, just a game and a half behind the Indiana Pacers for 9th, just three games behind the Charlotte Hornets for 8th, just four and a half games behind the Miami Heat for 7th. The Hornets beat the Boston Celtics 125-104 on Sunday. The Pacers won at the Orlando Magic 131-112 on Sunday night. And think about this with what the Wizards are doing. They're doing this despite missing a number of key players. No Rui Hachimura now for each of the last four games due to left knee soreness. Denny Avdia is done for the season due to a right ankle fracture that was suffered in that win over the Golden State Warriors at Capital One Arena last Wednesday night. And the Wizards long ago lost Thomas Bryant to a partially torn left ACL that was suffered on January 9th. We have talked about this. How is this good or bad that the Wizards are doing this? Because they're still, even in a realistic best-case scenario, a middle-of-the-pack team in the Eastern Conference. And I will continue to look at what the Wizards are doing in the following way. A, it feels good to win and to have good things to see and talk about with our team. B, as long as the winning is happening with pieces that can be good for you for multiple seasons to come, the winning is fine. What's key is this. Both Bradley Beal and Russell Westbrook can opt out of their contracts in the summer of 2022, i.e. after next season. So the Wizards this offseason, to me, have to make a choice. You're either going all in on Beal and Westbrook, or you're getting out while the getting's still good and trading them this summer and getting back as many assets as possible. What the winning this season perhaps allows you to do is do the former. Go all in, perhaps attract another significant piece and maybe try to make a run at the Eastern Conference. So that's the beauty of the winning here. It's allowing for more options this offseason. The way things are going, the Wizards are going to have to blow this whole thing up. Now it's like, well, you still can blow it up. There still actually is an argument to blow it up. But you also now can say, maybe it's time to double down on what you have here and try to get that next big piece. Now, who is that next big piece? Hard to say. And if that piece doesn't exist, then I think you really do seriously have to examine blowing the whole thing up because you don't want to get stuck in that, you know, 45 win territory where you're good enough to not be in the lottery, but never great enough to actually do anything of consequence. But that's the intriguing thing now with the way things are going. If the Wizards continue to do well, they make it into this playing tournament, make it into the actual NBA playoffs and do some damage. Well, then you can start to wonder about, let's try to get that next big piece and figure this thing out. The other funny thing with all this, of course, is 
the success here may be saving Scott Brooks' job. So that's, that's, that's another thing that has to be looked at. I still don't think Scott Brooks is the guy to coach this team long term, but it is true. All of this winning may in fact be saving his job. But anyway, the Wizards win twice over the weekend. It was a weird weekend for Bradley Beal. So the win at the Thunder on Friday night, Beal four of six on threes, 33 points, six rebounds, three assists, and two blocks. But he did commit seven turnovers. So there's another one of these high turnover games for Beal this season. And then the win over the Cavs on Sunday night, Beal two of four on threes, 11 of 20 on twos, five of six on free throws, 33 points, six rebounds, three assists, just two turnovers. So a lot of good stuff from Beal, but he got hurt late in the game. He suffered some sort of leg injury on a driving finger roll layup for a 114-108 Wizards lead with 113 left in the fourth quarter. Ended up sitting for the final 38.9 seconds. Beal said that when he landed on that layup, uh, it felt like someone kicked him in the calf. Uh, you never want to hear something like that. Tried to play through the injury, but ended up sitting, like I said, for the final 38.9 seconds. Was walking around normally after the game on Sunday night, but that doesn't mean that he didn't suffer something. So we'll have to monitor where Bradley Beal is at. But overall, another productive set of games for Beal over the weekend. Russell Westbrook was great on Friday night, especially three of four on threes, 11 and 19 on twos, six to seven on free throws, had another triple double. That's 28 on the season, extending his single season and career franchise records. He had 37 points, 11 assists, just three turnovers and 11 rebounds. He is seven triple double shy. Westbrook is of Oscar Robertson's all-time record for career regular season triple doubles. The big O at 181 Westbrook at 174. Now, he wasn't nearly as good on Sunday night in the win over the Cavs. Westbrook did not shoot well in the game. 0-2 on threes, 5-13 on twos, 4-7 on free throws. Also had just five rebounds, which for like 99% of the point guards out there is just fine. But for Westbrook, we're so used to these, you know, double-digit rebounding totals and like rebounding totals approaching 20 that uh, five rebounds strikes you as odd. But anyway, five boards to go with 14 points, 11 assists, four turnovers, and a couple of steals. How about Haul Neto? This has been so interesting to see. So with Hachimura missing the last four games, Neto has been starting. And Neto, especially on Friday night, was really good. The win at OKC, three of five on threes, 15 points, five assists versus two turnovers, four rebounds and two steals. Neto in the win over the Cavs on Sunday night, two of three on threes, 14 points for the game. This was, though, another game for the Wizards in which multiple Wizards starters don't do much, but multiple reserves do. This has been a trend during this surge here for the Wizards. So let's start with a guy who started on Sunday night who nobody is used to seeing start, and that is Anthony Gill. So Anthony Gill in the win at OKC on Friday night played out of his mind off the bench. Nine points, four or five shooting, 10 rebounds, game best plus minus rating of plus 20 in just 20 minutes, 18 seconds off the bench. Brooks actually gave Gill a start on Sunday night. He ended up not doing much playing for just 13 minutes, 49 seconds. Alex Len continued to start on Sunday night, started for a 23rd consecutive game, but played for just 10 minutes, 20 seconds. This happens every game with Len. He starts and then he barely plays. But the Wizards bench delivered once again during this surge on Sunday night. Daniel Gafford, what a game for him. What what a find Gafford has proven to be. But, you know, he actually came down to earth a bit in the win at the Thunder on Friday night. And then Gafford was back to going nuclear in the victory over the Cavs on Sunday night. 12 points on 5 of 7 shooting, 6 rebounds, 4 blocks, 4 steals, and 2 assists versus no turnovers. 
in 26 minutes, 45 seconds off the bench. How about that? A 12-6-4-4 and two game for Gafford in less than 27 minutes off the bench. And I tell you what, of all the numbers I just read to you, the 26-45 might be the most significant. His playing time is going up. Gafford had been on a minutes restriction. He's playing more. That's a very good thing. But he has been so good for the Wizards since they traded for him. Robin Lopez had another good game on Sunday night. 14 points, 5 of 5 shooting, 5 rebounds in just 10.55 off the bench. How about that? Less than 11 minutes of playing time. Rolo, as they call him, has 14 of 5. Ish Smith who's been given the Wizards productive minutes lately. Another good game on Sunday night. Two of four on threes, eight points, four assists, just one turnover, three rebounds, and two blocks in 18-27 off the bench. Garrison Matthews was good on Sunday night. Two of five on threes, eight points, three rebounds, two steals in 22-46 off the bench. I mentioned the Wizards having that great fourth quarter, winning it 32-17. Matthews played for all 12 minutes in the fourth quarter on Sunday night. Same for Davies Bertans, who did not have a great game shooting. In fact, he didn't have even a decent game shooting. 3 of 12 from the field, just 3 of 10 on threes, but he had the best plus minus rating in the game, plus 25 in 34 minutes, 12 seconds off the bench. And Bertans, like Matthews, played for all 12 minutes in that fourth quarter that the Wizards won by 15. The record is on the line. On Monday night, Wizards try to tie the franchise record with what would be a ninth consecutive victory, home to the San Antonio Spurs at 7, and then the Wizards are home to the Los Angeles Lakers, Wednesday night at 7.30. So isn't it funny, for all of the talk about how good the National League East was going to be in the 2021 season, the NL East, at least so far, has been a big flop, okay? And it's early, yes, no doubt about that. But if you Google up your National League East standings on this Monday, you will see that four of the five teams are below 500. Four of the five teams have losing records. From that standpoint, it is the worst division of the six divisions in Major League Baseball. And the first place team is a mere one game above 500. That team would be your nine and eight New York Mets. But in last place in this so far underwhelming National League East, is the team in Washington, the Nationals. They now are 8 and 11 with a run differential of minus 24. By far the worst run differential in the National League. It is the second worst run differential in Major League Baseball so far. No team in the NL and just one other team in MLB, that team being the Detroit Tigers, has been outscored by more runs than the Nats have been outscored by so far this year. Another series loss over the weekend. Nats dropped 2-3 or at the Mets. A 6-0 loss on Friday night. A 7-1 win on Saturday. And a 4-0 loss on Sunday afternoon. Yes, two shutout losses over three games. The offense is a mess. And no doubt, it is an offense without by far its best batter right now. Juan Soto placed on the 10-day injured list this past Tuesday evening with a left shoulder strain. But the Nationals have been shut out in five of 19 games on the season. Five times in 19 games to begin your year, you've been held to zero. The Nats, as we speak on this Monday, have the following team slash line over 19 games this season. Your slash line is your batting average, followed by your on-base percentage, followed by your slugging percentage. The Nats are batting 242. That stinks. The Nats have an on-base percentage of 308. That stinks. The Nats have a slugging percentage of 356. That stinks. 
You know, you look at something like the 6 nothing loss at the Mets on Friday night, a game in which the Nats got degrommed, as in Jacob degrom. The Nats look completely feeble against the best pitcher on the planet at the moment. And yes, that is a thing, right? Jacob deGrom is awesome. He is, to me, the number one pitcher in baseball. And so he's made a lot of teams look foolish so far. But you also have to ask the question of, did you have to be that bad? You know, like, I I understand not doing well against the great deGrom. Did you have to do that poorly? Jacob deGrom tossed a two-hit shutout, 15 strikeouts versus no walks. He threw 84 of his 109 pitches for strikes. Just 25 of his 109 pitches were balls. That is unbelievable. So yes, you were facing Jacob deGrom, but still, you were totally submissive to deGrom in that game on Friday night. When, oh, by the way, deGrom had two more hits. You know, Jacob deGrom was a shortstop at Stetson University for a couple of seasons. DeGrom on Friday night, one out ribby double in a Mets three-run fifth and a one-out single in the bottom of the eighth inning. But it's not just games against Jacob deGrom in which the Nats are struggling right now. Game in, game out, the Nats are having offensive issues. You know, Davey Martinez shuffled the lineup a bunch beginning with game two in this series. That only did so much. And what's really jumping out, I know to me right now, as much as anything is, the Nats' supposed top hitters are not coming through. And you start with the guy who's been the Nationals' cleanup batter so far this season, Josh Bell. Starting first baseman in all three games at the Mets. Davey, for whatever reason, is not playing Ryan Zimmerman. Zim finally got into a game on Sunday as a pinch hitter. He struck out, but that was Zimmerman's first appearance in a game since the previous Sunday. Zimmerman did not play Monday through Saturday of last week. And yes, the Nats were off on Thursday, but still, like Ryan Zimmerman had been on a milk carton for whatever reason. I'm not telling you that Ryan Zimmerman is the cure-all to the Nationals' offensive problems, but you know what? Ryan Zimmerman, now two Saturdays ago, that 6-2 win over the Arizona Diamondbacks on Nationals Park, did have a pinch leadoff first pitch homer in the bottom of the eighth inning. The Nats are not hitting for any power right now. Their last home run was a Josh Bell home run a week ago tomorrow night. Last Tuesday night, the Josh Bell homer that night, that's the last time the Nationals homered. So I don't know, maybe Zim could help you out. But Josh Bell, yes, that homer aside, has really been struggling. Over the three games at the Mets, 0 for 11 with a walk and five strikeouts. Bell, as we speak, a batting average of 119, an on-base percentage of 208, a slugging percentage of 238. He has been woeful so far this year. And I don't know. I mean, I get that the guy has talent and the guy did have a monster 2019 season with the Pittsburgh Pirates, but we're starting to get close to a time where you have to say to yourself, uh, maybe we need to drop this guy in the order. You know, maybe we need to lessen his playing time. I'm all for giving Josh Bell an opportunity to find himself as a batter, but 48 plate appearances. It's not like he just started playing here and he's been atrocious so far this season. And, you know, he's not exactly a guy you say, well, at least he brings good defense to the table. His defense is spotty. You know, we saw this actually on Sunday, bottom of the second, Josh Bell made a high and bad throw as the Nats had Jonathan Villar in a rundown, often being picked off by Patrick Corbin. Trey Turner made a terrific leaping catch of Bell's throw and then tumbled down to tag Villar out for the second out. But that could have been a disastrous moment, uh, that Josh Bell throw, if not for the athleticism of Trey Turner. How about Kyle Schwarber? You know, Kyle Schwarber, the national starting left fielder and number five batter in all three games at the Mets, two for 12 with two singles in RBI and no walks. Kyle Schwarber, as we speak, a 192 batting average, a 222 on base percentage, a 308 slugging percentage. And let me give Kyle Schwarber some credit. First of all, he smashed a pitch that ended up being an out on Sunday afternoon, got totally robbed of a two-out extra base hit to deep center on a great catch 
by the Mets center fielder Albert Almora, who made a leaping catch at the warning track and then crashed into the outfield wall for the third out in the top of the six. If you go by the StatCast data, Schwarber hit that ball 103.7 miles per hour. The contact that he made had an expected batting average of 930. Yes, a 930 batting average on balls hit as Schwarber hit that ball. So there was some bad luck involved, yes. But still, overall, Kyle Schwarber is not producing as a batter. Now, what's so funny about Schwarber is, despite his very bad reputation as a defensive left fielder, he actually had two great defensive plays on Sunday afternoon. I want to give him credit. He was magnificent in both these instances. In the Mets' one-run fourth, uh, Schwarber made a very nice backhanded and sliding forward catch of a first pitch fly ball off the bat of Jonathan Villar for the first out. And then Schwarber in the Mets one run fifth, an excellent outfield assist in throwing out Francisco Lindor for a double play off catching a Michael Conforto fly out for the first out. Uh, Lindor initially ruled safe, but replay review correctly, uh, overturning the decision on the field and giving the out and giving Schwarber the credit uh, for the assist. So two very good defensive plays by Schwarber, but he's here to hit. He's here for his bat. And the bat so far has not produced. Even Trey Turner, who had been doing well, struggling now. Uh, Turner, the Nats starting shortstop number three batter in all three games in the series. One for 10 with a single and no walks. And Turner had some standout defensive moments in the series, including a great play in the 7-1 win on Saturday. A leadoff first pitch ground out by the Mets starting pitcher Marcus Stroman, bottom of the third. Turner ranging to his left on the outfield grass to field the grounder up the middle, sliding and then spitting on his knees and then making a one-hop throw to Bell at first. And let me give Josh Bell credit here. Actually made a nice pick of the one-hop throw. But Turner isn't hitting as he was hitting uh, really prior to the series, prior to the last few series anyway. And Trey Turner now may be hurt. He got hit by a pitch with one out in the top of the six on Sunday and then eventually left the game with what is being called a left forearm contusion. X-rays were negative, but we all know how these things go with the Nats. The guy could end up missing six weeks the way things have gone in the past with situations like this one for the Nationals. So we'll see. Hopefully he doesn't miss any time Nats are off on Monday. But got to get the offense going, and especially you need the big boys to deliver. Bell, Schwarber, Turner. You know, Turner I'll be a little lighter on because, again, he was hitting earlier. But Bell and Schwarber, I mean, these guys are supposed to be part of the meat of your lineup, your numbers four and five batters, and they've given you next to nothing so far on the year. Even another guy like Trey, who had been hitting, Josh Harrison, did not have a very good series. So Josh Harrison, starting second baseman in all three games, in the revamped Davey lineup, ends up being the leadoff batter in games two and three. But Josh Harrison, just two for 13 in the series, with two singles and no walks. And he was guilty of a major base running boo-boo in the game on Sunday. First pitch leadoff single in the top of the first off the Mets starter, Taiwan Walker. But Harrison then got picked off at first base by Walker moments after a previous pickoff attempt by Walker had nearly gotten Harrison. So, you know, he should have been on alert for, hey, Walker's got a pretty decent pickoff move. I got to be careful here. And then moments later, he gets out. He gets tagged out, gets picked off by Taiwan Walker. Hated seeing that. Now, there were some offensive bright spots for the Nats. Probably the biggest of the bunch was Yadiel Hernandez. Uh, Yeah, Yadiel Hernandez in his age 33 season. He is technically a rookie, a guy who the Nationals signed from Cuba, came off the bench in game one, was the Nats starting right fielder and number two batter in games two and three. And he ended up doing well, four for seven with four singles, two walks, and two RBI was especially good in the 4 nothing loss on Sunday afternoon. Two for two with two singles 
and two walks. So you did have that. You also had some good plate appearances from Andrew Stevenson over the weekend. He was in that starting right fielder in game one, the starting center fielder in game two, and came off the bench in game three, went three for nine with a double, two singles, and a walk. And Stevenson, in the loss on Sunday, did have a pinch leadoff single on an 0-2 pitch in the top of the eighth, but got to get the offense going and got to stop making outs on the base paths. I just referenced the Harrison play from Sunday with him getting picked off. How about Victor Robles? Okay, so Robles, starting center fielder in games one and three, came off the bench in game two, two for seven with a double and a single. So, you know, he's actually getting on base to a decent amount. He's not hitting for power, uh, nor is he hitting for average, but Robles, he's got actually a pretty good on base percentage on the season so far, but Robles on Sunday, a leadoff double in the top of the third, but then gets thrown out at third, trying to stretch the hit into a triple. And Davey Martinez was not happy about this at all. You know, Davey's down on Robles, barely gave Robles any chance at truly being the Nats' leadoff batter for this season. And I have defended Robles. I've said, look, give the guy more than just, you know, the handful of games that you ended up giving him, especially given that this guy was a very highly touted prospect just a few years ago. But in fairness to Davey, at some point, Victor's got to live up to that hype. And it's taken a long while for him as a batter to deliver on that potential. And even though, like I said, he is getting on base to a pretty decent extent so far this season, not hitting for power, not hitting for average, and he's making too many outs on the base pass. I'm all for aggressive base running, but if you're going to do something like that, try to stretch a double into a triple, you better be safe. And he wasn't. And you never want to make the first out of an inning at third base. And if you see the wide view of that play, the third base coach, Bob Senley Henley, is holding both hands up in the sky saying, stop, don't come. And yet Robles kept coming and he ended up getting tagged out. Speaking of base running boo-boos, I mean, there's a litany of these with the Nats so far this season. Starling Castro. So Castro was the Nats starting third baseman and number six batter in all three games in the series. He did okay, all things considered. Two for 10, two singles, two walks, and an RBI. But how about what happened with Castro in the Nats' lone win of the series, the 7-1 victory on Saturday? Castro has a four-pitch walk that loads the bases in the Nats' two-run fifth inning, but gets thrown out easily at home on a failed safety squeeze with Joe Ross bunting for the second down. Castro looked like put on the brakes, then for some reason kept going, and he ended up being out rather easily. Way too many outs on the base pass for the Nats, and that is especially bothersome when you're not hitting, as the Nats are not hitting right now. When it came to the Nationals starting pitching over the three games at the Mets, you had a good outing, you had a bad outing, and you had a so-so outing. And unfortunately, the bad outing came from Patrick Corbin, who's probably the last guy right now who you want to see putting forth a bad outing. Patrick Corbin in the 4 nothing loss on Sunday afternoon is bad for a third time in four starts this season. Four runs in four innings on seven hits, gave up two homers, a double, and four singles, issued three walks, had three strikeouts. How about this? He threw just 48 of his 79 pitches for strikes. Did draw a one-out four-pitch walk in the top of the third as a batter, as Nationals pitchers continue to actually hit pretty well. But Corbin now, as we speak, an ERA of 10.47 on the season, a whip of 2.02 over his four starts. He's been brutal. And it's really disappointing because he had been good in his previous starts. You felt like maybe he figured some stuff out. Corbin, we saw in the 3-2 win over the St. Louis Cardinals at Nationals Park last Tuesday night when, again, the Nationals hit their last home run, the Josh Bell home run. Uh, But Corbin in that game was quite good. Six scoreless innings, five strikeouts. And then on Sunday, he's right back to doing as we saw him do over his first two starts, not throw strikes and get whacked around the yard. Corbin gave up two runs in the bottom of the first on a one-out five-pitch walk of Pete Alonso and a two-out two-run homer by J.D. Davis. 
Corbin then gave up a run in the bottom of the fourth, which he began by allowing three consecutive hits, leadoff full count double by J.D. Davis, despite him having been down to the count at 1.02, double by Michael Conforto, and an RBI single by James McCann on a 1-2 pitch. Corbin later issued a one-out four-pitch walk of Albert Almora, but ultimately got out of a bases-loaded one-out jam by generating back-to-back strikeouts of the Mets starting pitcher Taiwan Walker and Brandon Nimmo. Okay, but Corbin then gave up another run in the bottom of the fifth, leadoff homer by Pete Alonso. Corbin then gave up a single to Francisco Lindor and then got pulled mercifully by Davey Martinez in favor of Austin Voth. Really bad to see this with Corbin. I mean, the Nationals are very lacking in starting pitching depth, so it's not like he's in any real danger of being yanked from the rotation, but this is troubling. Bad in 2020, bad in three of his first four starts this season, and the bad cannot be emphasized enough. Again, the guy's ERA is 1047 over four starts on the year. Start number one, he gave up six runs in four and a third innings. Start number two, he gave up 10 runs, nine earned in two innings. And now in this start number four, four runs in four innings. The good outing for the Nationals in terms of starting pitching over the weekend came from Joe Ross. And whereas Patrick Corbin has been bad in three of his four starts so far this season, Ross now has been good in three of his four starts on the season. Ross was coming off a bad outing, what we saw in the 12-5 loss of the Cardinals at Nats Park last Monday night. Ten runs all earned in four and a third innings, but Ross in the 7-1 win on Saturday back to being good. One run in six innings on four strikeouts versus five hits. Gave up a homer and four singles, a walk and a hit by pitch, and Ross had a hit, a ribby hit. a two-out first pitch ribby single in the top of the second inning. So nice to see that from Joe Ross on Saturday. And then Eric Fetty had kind of the so-so outing. So Fetty was facing DeGrom on Friday night. Uh, You you knew that was probably going to be a game that the Nats lose, although you never know with this stuff. You know, Fetty, he was not terrible, but ultimately three runs in five innings isn't anything to write home about. The thing about Fetty, though, is that he tossed four scoreless innings. So he got off to a really nice start, and then the trouble came in the bottom of the fifth. It was in the bottom of the fifth that Fetty gave up all three of the runs that he allowed, three of the four hits that he allowed, one of the two walks that he allowed, and the hit by pitch that he allowed. But still, all things considered, I think Fetty's actually been kind of a bright spot so far for the Nationals this season. I mean, it's all relative. 2014 first-round pick. He's not supposed to be, you know, someone who you uh, throw a parade over when he lasts for five innings and doesn't get scorched. But that's kind of that's kind of where we are now with Eric Fetty. But Corbin is the thing. Uh, very concerning where he's at, especially with Steven Strasburg still on the 10-day injured list. And with John Lester still not a part of the Nationals rotation. Boy, this ramp-up for John Lester, this is some kind of ramp-up, okay? I mean, geez, uh, I, I understand COVID-19 protocols prior to that, the parathyroid surgery, you know, it's not like he's 22, but boy, I mean, this, you know, this is, the the ramp must be the the, the size of the Grand Canyon here. This ramp up that John Lester's in the midst of in terms of finally entering into the Nationals rotation. You know, I think Fetty's relative success has maybe allowed the Nats to slow play Lester, but Corbin's struggles, I think, should make you hit the fast forward button on Lester. And uh, let's maybe uh, put some pedal to the metal here and get this guy a part of your major league rotation in the 2021 season. Uh, Nats bullpen did have a good weekend. Nats relievers over the three games combined to give up just three runs over 10 innings. It was a weird deal, though, with the pen. Davey not once used his ace reliever, Brad Hand, nor did Davey ever use his eighth inning guy and Daniel Hudson. Uh, circumstances were such that uh, neither one of those guys was called upon. I think it's always kind of disappointing, though. You know, you shouldn't just use guys specific for their roles. Like, it, it, like you can take a step back, you look at you say, this was a relatively big series, right? Three games at the Mets. Uh, you know, a big division rival, a team that is viewed as a major contender to win 
the National League East this season. Like I said, technically speaking, as we speak, the Mets are in first place in the NL East, the lone team above 500 in the division. And you not once deploy your ace reliever, nor do you deploy, in theory, your second best reliever or maybe your third best reliever. He certainly pitched well this season, Daniel Hudson has. So I think you do have to kind of evaluate that if you're Davey Martinez. But the bullpen was good. I mean, the bullpen really was not the problem. And especially on Sunday, how about Austin both? So both and Tanner Rainey combined for four scoreless innings on Sunday. Both three scoreless innings with four strikeouts. Uh, Austin Voth may have found himself here in this current role with the Nationals. He's he's a reliever, but he's kind of like a longer reliever. And Davies used him, and he's used him to pretty good success. Austin Voth so far this season, two runs allowed in eight and two-thirds innings, 10 strikeouts over those eight and two-thirds innings. Done a nice job. So it's early. The sample size is certainly small. But I like what we've seen from Austin Voth. And the more Tanner Rainey continues to find himself, the better. He's gotten off to kind of a shaky start, but he does toss his scoreless bottom of the eighth on Sunday. Nats are off on Monday, then have a two-game series against the Toronto Blue Jays in Dunedin, Florida, Tuesday night and Wednesday night. Remember, the Blue Jays aren't playing their home games in Canada, at least so far this season, due to Canada's strict COVID-19 rules. So the schedule does lighten up a bit here. I mean, the Nats have not had it easy to begin this season. First with the COVID-19 absences, then with Juan Soto and Steven Strasburg landing on the 10-day injured list, but also the schedule. The Nats have faced one really good team after another. That does, in theory, lessen now with this two-game series coming up against the Toronto Blue Jays in Dunedin, and then a three-game series against the Miami Marlins at Nationals Park. But after that, three-game series at home against the Atlanta Braves, followed by a three-game series at the New York Yankees, who know are not off to a great start, but you know you know they're going to find themselves as the season goes on. So you got some lesser weights coming up, in theory anyway, who knows how the games play out, but then you're back to facing some of the big boys in MLB. And you know what? At this point, I'm not sure it even matters who the Nationals face. They got to start hitting. They've got to figure out a way to do offense as they wait for Juan Soto to come back. And even once Juan Soto is back, because Soto's not going to be a cure-all. You know, as great as he is, he's one guy. This isn't the NBA where one guy can turn everything around. Juan Soto's going to help, okay? He's the best hitter on the team, maybe the best hitter in the sport. But the likes of, again, Bell, Schwarber, Turner, got to get going. You know, in Turner's case, got to get going again. And, you know, I think there's more you can get from someone like, say, a Starling Castro. But this thing of getting shut out five times in 19 games, that's not going to cut it, even if the National League East doesn't end up being what we thought it was going to be. The Capitals, they are back to being in second place in the East Division, one point behind the Pittsburgh Penguins, who beat the Boston Bruins one nothing on Sunday. So the still very bunched in tight East Division in the NHL is as follows at the top. Pens have 67 points. Caps have 66 points. The New York Islanders have 63 points. The Boston Bruins have 60 points. A mere seven points separate the top four teams in the East Division. Caps are just one point behind the first place Penguins. Caps don't play again until Tuesday night when they will be home to the Islanders at seven. And what'll be the first game for the Caps this season with fans at Capital One Arena. Yes, the game will be the first of the Caps final six regular season home games. Just six home games left in the Caps regular season. And we'll just be starting with fans being allowed back at Capital One Arena. Thank you, Empress Bowser. But anyway, uh, that game will be the last of three consecutive games for the Caps against the Islanders. And the Caps so far in this big stretch, which we've been talking about quite a bit on the podcast, 2-0-0. 
Thursday night, the one nothing shootout win at the Islanders. And Saturday night, the Caps improved to 31-13-4, a 6-3 win at the Islanders. Just a great job of the Caps of winning these first two games at the Islanders. Now, the Caps on Saturday night did blow a 2-0 first period lead, but scored four of the game's final five goals. And credit the Caps as much as anything for this, winning despite being without Alex Ovechkin. No Ovi on Saturday night due to injury. You know how rare it is that we say that, that Ovechkin doesn't play due to injury? So he missed the game due to a lower body injury that was suffered in that one nothing shootout win at the Islanders on Thursday night. Remember, we had some fun with this on Friday's podcast where Ovi doesn't play late in the third period nor in overtime in that game. And head coach Peter Laviolette during his post-game Zoom press conference says that he, he doesn't know why. Like, oh yeah, Ovi wasn't out there. I'm not sure why. Oh yeah, sure, yeah, sure you don't, old Lavi. I mean, I, I love how these coaches just lie through their teeth sometimes with this stuff. Anything for any kind of competitive advantage. But anyway, no Ovi on Saturday night. The first regular season game that Ovechkin missed due to injury since March 5th, 2015. How about that? You got to go back more than six years for the last time Alex Ovechkin missed a game due to injury. This was just the 18th regular season game in the career of Alex Ovechkin that he missed due to injury and just the 36th regular season game in his career that he missed for any reason, you know, so suspension, rest, personal reasons, whatever. I mean, the extent to which Ovechkin has been durable really can't be overstated. Like, it's not just that Alex Ovechkin is an all-time great goal scorer, maybe the best goal scorer in the history of the NHL. It's that he has done that while still being a physical player, you know, racking up hits and not missing time. Cannot emphasize that enough with Ovechkin. But he was not there on Saturday night, was not uh, able to play on Saturday night due to injury. But the Caps end up winning and winning rather convincingly. And one of the reasons was Ovechkin's replacement. Uh, Ovi's replacement as a Caps top line left winger was Daniel Sprung. It was interesting. Laviolette during his post-game Zoom presser, said that he didn't want to elevate another player to the top line in Ovechkin's absence and dis- and disrupt at least one other line. So Laviolette just put Sprong on the top line, despite Sprong having been a healthy scratch for that one nothing shootout win at the Islanders last Thursday night. But Sprong came through on Saturday night, two even-strength goals. So a great job by Sprong, instant production from him, as Ovechkin's replacement. The Caps also won on Saturday night despite being without defenseman Justin Schultz. He did not play for a second consecutive game due to a lower body injury. And how about Schultz's replacement, Trevor Van Riemsdyk, who's barely played this season due to Zdeno Chara playing so much. Van Riemsdyk was signed by the Caps in the offseason. Again, he's like barely seen the ice this year, but Trevor Van Riemsdyk was really good on Saturday night. Had a secondary assist, had a plus minus rating of plus three, finished sixth on the Caps in five-on-five shot attempt percentage per natural stat trick at 63.33, 19 shot attempts for, 11 shot attempts against for the Caps in five-on-five situations with TDR on the ice on Saturday night. And LaViolette was gushing about Trevor Van Riemsdyk during the post-game Zoom press conference. Quote, I thought he was outstanding tonight from a defensive standpoint, from a quick puck movement standpoint, a good first pass out of our end or through the neutral zone. He jumped right into the offensive zone identity end quote. So you're minus Ovechkin, minus Schultz, but you get really good play from their replacements in Sprung and Van Riemsdyk, respectively. Also, Caps won the puck possession battle on Saturday night, thanks to a dominant first period. Now, the Caps in the win at the Islanders on Thursday night actually had a bad first period and then were better as the game went on. Saturday night was kind of the opposite. Very good in the first period and then not quite as good as the game went on. But the Caps win the puck possession battle 
Uh, jump out to a 2-0 lead in the first period, though they do end up ultimately blowing that lead before scoring four of the game's final five goals. But the Caps in that first period Saturday night per natural stat trick, 25 five-on-five shot attempts to the Islanders 13. I mean, just an excellent job in terms of winning the puck possession battle in the opening 20 minutes. Also during the first period, Caps for natural stat trick, seven high danger five-on-five shot attempts to the Islanders three. Now, rest of the game, bit of a different story. Over the final two periods, Caps just four high danger five-on-five shot attempts to the Islanders eight. So actually got doubled up over the rest of the game in the high danger shot attempt category in five-on-five play per natural stat trick, but a very good start to the game. And while we're talking puck possession, another impactful performance from the new guy, Anthony Mantha. No, he did not score a goal, but he did have a secondary assist and he was second on the caps and five-on-five shot attempt percentage at 65 per natural stat trick. Mantha came to the Caps with the reputation of being a puck possession monster, and he has lived up to that so far in his tenure with the Caps. And I mentioned his secondary assist. How about that? If you watched the game, or at least you saw the highlights, the Mantha secondary assist coming in a sequence, a great passing by the Caps. Give and go between Mantha and Nicholas Backstrom. Mantha passes the puck from above the high slot to Backstrom in the left circle. And then Backstrom, as he crosses the goal line to the left of the Islanders' net, Passes the puck to TJ Oshie in the low slot for an even strength goal, 10.55 into the first period for a 2-0 Caps lead. Great passing by Mantha and Backstrom in that sequence. Also coming through on Saturday night, Evgeny Kuznetsov, he had an even strength goal and two assists, continuing his recent good play. The goaltender for the Caps on Saturday night was Ilya Samsonov. Uh, He was a Caps starting goaltender for a second consecutive game. You know, I said it was going to be telling who Laviolette went within net in this crucial stretch of the season. Three consecutive games against the Islanders, then two home games against the Pittsburgh Penguins. So far, Samsonov has been the starter in each of these two games, and he wasn't great on Saturday night, but he was good enough. Stopped 21 of the 24 shots on goal that he faced per natural stat trick. Stopped 10 of the 12 high danger shots on goal that he faced, but he also gave up a goal on a low danger shot, and this came on another short-handed goal given up by the Capitals. This is really strange to me, how the Caps cannot prevent giving up the shorthanded goal anymore. You know, the Caps, they, they were not good on special teams on Saturday night. 0 for 2 on the penalty kill, 0 for 1 on the power play. But the Caps also give up a shorthanded goal for a fifth time in 14 games. How does that happen? Five shorthanded goals allowed for the Caps over the last 14 games. The Islanders defenseman, Adam Pellick, a shorthanded goal, 737 into the second period on a blast from the point that had no business being a goal. I mean, that, that was amateur hour for Samsonov. Nobody was in front of him. He wasn't screened. The shot was from far away, and he still allows it to go through. So that was disappointing to see. But still, Samsonov comes through, does enough for the Caps to win. Like I said, he did face quite a bit in the way the high danger shots, t- 10 of the 12 high danger shots on goal that he faced per natural stat trick. And, you know, you take a, a step back, Samsonov over his last four games now, save percentage of 933. So even though he wasn't necessarily stellar on Saturday night, I mean, that's pretty good. Last four games, save percentage of 933. Uh, during that stretch, he stopped 98 of the 105 shots on goal that he's faced. And you do the compare and contrast, uh, Samsonov versus the Islanders goaltender named Ilya on Saturday night. Ilya Sorokin was the Islanders goaltender, and he wasn't close to being good. Uh, Sorokin was all kinds of leaky on Saturday night. He stopped just 24 of the 30 shots on goal that he faced. So the Caps have done well so far in this stretch, but the East is not easy. And the Capitals still do find themselves a point behind the Penguins for first place 
in the East Division. You got the two home games coming up against the Pens Thursday night and Saturday night. But before that, the final game of this three-game stretch against the Islanders, home to the Isles at Capital One Arena on Tuesday night at 7. Again, with fans, that should be fun. All right, Orioles over the weekend do drop two of three games to the Oakland A's at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. 3-1 loss on Friday night, 7-2 loss on Saturday night. But then came the game on Sunday afternoon, an 8-1 victory, a win by the O's that snapped the Athletics' 13-game winning streak. The A's had won 13 straight since a 1-7 and start. The Orioles, with the win, get to 9-12 and on the season with a run differential of minus six. Not that bad, all things considered, especially for a tanking team like the Orioles. And so with all of that as the setup, Joe Angel, if you would. And the Orioles again in the win column. Yes, thank you, Joe. The Orioles were in the win column on Sunday. Uh, the offense was not good for most of the series, especially in game one, but the offense busted out big time in game three. Austin Hayes, starting left fielder, number six batter, hitting two home runs off the A starter on Sunday. The former Nationals prospect, Jesus Lizardo, one of the guys who the Nats traded to the Oakland Athletics in that trade that brought back Sean Doolittle and Ryan Madsen in the 2017 season. Hayes also drawing a walk on Sunday, but he had a two-out solo homer off Lizardo in the bottom of the second and a two-out two-run homer off Lizardo in the bottom of the fourth. And then Hayes drawing a one-out walk in the Orioles' five-run eighth inning. Good to see Austin Hayes have a game like this. He was on the 10-day injured list from April 5th to April 20th with a right hamstring strain. So his season is essentially just getting going. And Hayes has talent. So I like to see this from Austin. Really would like for him to prove himself to be a building block for the Orioles moving forward. And then Cedric Mullins. Boy, does he continue to have a really nice start to the season. Starting center fielder, number one batter, three singles on Sunday to raise his on-base percentage to 404 and his OPS to 886. Can't say enough about how well Mullins has done as a batter so far this season. Also great on Sunday was John Means. Uh, Means one run in six into third innings on six strikeouts versus just two hits, a solo homer and a single hand to walk. John Means is off to a great start this year. Has an ERA of 150, has a whip of 0.90 over five starts so far this season. And you know, you think about John Means. So he had a really good 2019 during which he was the Orioles' lone representative on the American League All-Star team. He finished that season, Means did, with a 4.8 wins above replacement for baseball reference. Last season, an uneven season for Means. He dealt with left arm fatigue. He dealt with the death of his father. He finished with an ERA of 4.53 over 10 starts, but he was very good over his last four starts, during which he had a 152 ERA over 23 and two-thirds innings. So now you look at what he's done to begin this season and his last nine starts have been really good. Last four starts of last season, first five starts of this season. So really good to see John Means pitch as he's pitched so far. There was some news, though, regarding the Orioles over the weekend. So Wade LeBlanc got DFA'd, and one of the Orioles' top prospects got called up. LeBlanc was the starter for that 7-2 loss to the A's on Saturday night. And in the spot start, did not do well. Four runs in one into third innings on two doubles, four singles, a walk and a wild pitch versus two strikeouts. And so the O's on Sunday, at least somewhat surprisingly, designated LeBlanc for assignment, but also recalled lefty pitcher Zach Louther 
from the alternate training side at Double A Bowie. Louther is a pretty well-regarded prospect for the Orioles. Now, he's not like, you know, some top 100 prospect or anything in the sport, but he was the Orioles' number 11 prospect for MLB Pipeline, was taken by the Yos in the second round of the 2017 draft, had his savior, and he actually ended up uh, making his debut for the O's on Sunday. Scoreless top of the ninth uh, in that 8-1 victory, including striking out Matt Chapman for the final out. But I'm interested to see what happens with LeBlanc here. So the way it works when you DFA someone is you have seven days to release the guy or put the guy on outright waivers. Uh, you can also trade the guy too. But if LeBlanc clears waivers, he can remain in the organization or he can choose to become a free agent. There's uh, there's a lot kind of to this LeBlanc thing. So first of all, he'd actually been pitching pretty well as a reliever this season. His first outing wasn't very good, but he had tossed four scoreless innings over his previous four appearances. And also LeBlanc has kind of gone uh, back and forth here with the Orioles. So he's in his age 36 season. This was his second season with the O's. LeBlanc was a starter for the O's last year, did not do well. ERA of 806 over six starts. But the O's re-signed LeBlanc this past February to a minor league contract. Then on March 25th, the O's announced that LeBlanc had requested and been granted his release to become a free agent. But then the next day, the O's announced the signing of LeBlanc to a one-year major league contract for the 2021 season. So the team and the pitcher have been in and out of love with each other quite a bit over the last few seasons here. Um, I, I don't think they're going to be able to trade LeBlanc, but you know, I'm interested to see, does he find employment elsewhere or does he end up kind of coming back to the Orioles and uh, they end up kind of going through this dance with him one more time? I mean, older player, clearly someone you have to maybe potentially flip, but he hasn't been good enough to do that at this point. So I, I would think he either opts to become a free agent or he does end up coming back uh, to the Orioles. Jorge Lopez was the Orioles' other starting pitcher in this series, and he struggled in that 3-1 loss on Friday night. Three runs in four innings on five hits, a homer, and four singles. Two walks uh, into wild pitch versus one strikeout through just 52 of his 81 pitches for strikes. And then there is this with the Orioles over the weekend. And I got a kick out of this as much as anything in sports over the last few days. So the Orioles' manager, Brandon Hyde, in a pregame Zoom press conference on Sunday, got asked about guess who? First baseman, Chris Davis. He who is not allowed to be spoken of. Persona non grata when it comes to the Orioles is Chris Davis. And Hyde very tellingly just said, just rehabbing. And when asked where, this is the best part, Hyde said that he wasn't sure. Now, I looked for the audio of this because Masson will post pre and post game press conferences for Brandon Hyde and Davey Martinez on YouTube. I watched the pregame Hyde presser. I did not see this. I don't know if it was said maybe in uh, like before or after the recording started. I don't know if maybe it was conveniently edited out. But I did not see the audio in case, you know, unless I just totally missed on it. But I watched the video essentially two times, did not see this exchange because I wanted to play this for you on the podcast. But he gets asked about, hey, how's Chris Davis doing? You know, the guy who's in the midst of a seven-year, $161 million contract who hasn't played in a single game for you guys since your first exhibition game. And Hyde goes, eh, just rehabbing. And then when asked where, i.e. like, where is he doing the rehabbing? Hyde says, I'm not sure. In case you need to be caught up, the Orioles on March 26th put Chris Davis on the 60-day injured list with a lower back strain, okay? And I put the phrase lower back strain in quotation marks. Davis supposedly strained his lower back, 
in the Orioles' first game of the 2021 Grapefruit League season. Isn't that something? Never played in another game in the Orioles' 2021 exhibition season. Because Davis has begun the season on the 60-day IL, he can't debut with the Orioles until at least the end of May. And even that, to me, is not a guarantee. I don't know that he ever plays for the Orioles this season or ever again. Chris Davis is in his age 35 season. He is in the next to last year of that debacle of a contract. Again, seven years, $161 million. Everyone knows he's been awful, especially over these last three seasons. Chris Davis, 2018 through 2020, a negative war per baseball reference to the tune of minus 5.1. You cannot state the extent to which that is wretched, okay? And it's not just that with Davis. Things have gotten ugly at various points over the last few years, including between Davis and Hyde. Perhaps you remember this, but in August 2019, there was an incident between Davis and Hyde in the Orioles dugout during a 14-2 loss to the New York Yankees at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Davis had to be held back from going after Hyde. So I don't know about you. I have never bought this Chris Davis lower back strain to begin with. A, the convenience of it. He suffers it in the first exhibition game and then is never heard from again. You know, he hasn't spoken to the media, Davis hasn't, since suffering the quote-unquote back strain. They put him on the 60-day IL. Nobody talks about him. Orioles media, like, never writes about what's going on or talks about what's going on with him. And then Hyde finally gets asked about it on Sunday, and Hyde says, just rehabbing. And when asked where, Hyde says that he isn't sure. Yeah, uh, I'm sure. That's the case. Look, I don't blame the Orioles for doing this, burying Chris Davis, okay? I mean, it's a sunk cost. You shouldn't just play the guy just because you're paying the guy. But I just find the whole thing comical. I mean, this is as phony as it gets, isn't it? This lower back strain. I've never bought this thing to begin with. And what Hyde said, this exchange that he had on Sunday, uh, that just further cements the way I'm looking at this thing anyway. You tell me what you think. Hit me up on Twitter at Al Galdi. You can always email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Next up for the O's, a four-game series against the New York Yankees at Camden Yards. Game one, Monday night at 7.05, Matt Harvey versus Davey Garcia. Yankees are coming off having won three of four at the Cleveland Indians, but the Yankees, like the O's, are 9-12 and on the season. Yes, we are living in a world in which the Orioles and the Yankees have the same record, and the Orioles have a better record than that of the Nationals. How long that lasts, who knows, but at least right now, you are able to say that. All right, that will do it for you and for me. Keep the feedback coming uh, on Tuesday's podcast. Much more on the Washington football team as it is, yes, draft week 2021. Going to be a big week on the pod. And also on Tuesday's podcast, I'll react to the latest from our Wizards who host the San Antonio Spurs Monday night at 7. Have a great rest of your Monday. I'll talk to you on Tuesday. What's Josh's confidence level like? Ask him. The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine. Stop noticing. But you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over 3 million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. 
For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour 3-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.